Hi, I'm Kevin Harrington, an original shark in the hit TV show Shark Tank. I'm also the inventor of the infomercial and an ass seen on TV. Dove is a special uh, entrepreneur. Uh, he does amazing podcasts, but he's also a speaker and a consultant. Hi, I'm Sal Sylvester. I'm the author of Unite, the four mindset shifts for senior leaders and founder of Coach Metrics. He's a thought leader in the field, fantastic author. He's got an amazing radio show. Hello there. My name is Brett Trapp. I'm a creative consultant living in Atlanta, Georgia, also the creator of Blue Babies Pink. Uh, this guy has written books, has a successful podcast, uh, and is absolutely changing the game when it comes to leadership and leadership development. Hey guys, Cameron Brown here, founder of The Thriving Collective. I travel the world helping people make a greater impact. Dov is a, just an outstanding character, uh, high quality guy, authentic guy, uh, master on leadership. My name is Chris Stoikos, founder of thebeardclub.com. And I'd just like to say that Dove has a very, very unique approach to working with businesses. Hey, this is Derry Apjohn, one of Davis, aka The Strategy Map. If I'm going to describe Dove in three words, it's going to be courageous, deep, and conscious. And that's exactly what you need in leadership right now. Hey guys, this is Devon Harris, original member of the Jamaican Bobstead team, three-time Olympian, author, speaker, philanthropist, he is one of the most amazing guys you'll ever meet, an amazing interviewer, but at the same time, an amazing speaker. Hi, I'm Nate Regeer, CEO and co-founding partner of Next Element Consulting, a global leadership training company specializing in conflict communication. You know, the more I get to know Dov Barron, the more I admire his authenticity, his genuine commitment to something that I share deep in my heart, which is this notion of authentic communication. I'm Jared Nichols. I'm a futurist, executive advisor, host of the NSBA podcast, The Road Ahead, and also president of the Jared Nichols Group. Dov is uh, an outstanding thought leader when it comes to leadership and the traits and the qualities of leadership that are gonna be necessary to succeed in the 21st century. Hey everybody, Coach Brew here, best-selling author of Stadium Status, taking your business to the big time. If I had to describe Dov in three words, it would be expertise, genuine, and heart-centered leader. I'm John Burgoff, the president of Flourishing Leadership Institute, where we enable communities and organizations. He has a finger on the pulse of what the future is asking for from leaders. Hey, this is Jordan Harbinger of the Art of Charm podcast. Dov Barron is a great host with insightful perspective. He understands what makes people tick, and he can get to the heart of the matter in an entertaining and educational and informational way. Hi, I'm Joshua Miller, and I am the author of the new book, I Call Bullshit, Live Your Life, Not Somebody Else's. Dov Barron, to me, when you talk about authentic leadership and cutting through the bullshit, there's nobody I would trust to go to than Dov Barron. Hello there, I'm Mike Glauser. I've been studying entrepreneurial leadership for more than 20 years. He really knows how to teach authentic leadership and that's one of the most important things today in leading organizations. Hi there, my name is Rick Parker. I am the founder of the Music Industry Blueprint. I help people navigate the music business. He had made me aware of some things that were quite visible, but were still hidden. I'm Tom Bilyeu, co-founder of Quest Nutrition and Impact Theory. Dov is absolutely amazing. I really enjoyed my time. A, he knows the guests before they come on, which is absolutely critical. But B, this guy, most importantly, has intensity, well thought out ideas, often counterintuitive, which is what 
makes him great. Hi, I'm Tim Sanders, author of the book Love is the Killer App, How to Win Business and Influence Friends. His perspective is laser sharp about the things that matter. Here's what I'm curious about, redemption. Is it possible? Do you think that someone who had spoken deeply hateful speech, behaved in deeply hateful ways, could find a way back? Let me ask you simply, is there a cure for hate? We might need it if there is. I'm your host, Dove Barron. You can find out more about how you can hire me as a speaker or strategist for your organization by simply going to dovebaron.com. That's D-O-V-B-A-R-O-N.com forward slash speaking or dovebaron.com forward slash consulting. This episode is brought to you by the theawesomemusicproject.com, connecting music, science, and story to enhance mental health. Find out more about the Awesome Music Project and the AMP Foundation at theawesomemusicproject.com. All right, let's uh, jump down onto this episode because our guest on this episode is Tony McAleer. He is the author of The Cure for Hate and is an international speaker that strives to educate individuals, families, communities, law enforcement, governments that are struggling and grappling with the white supremacist movement. Tony uh, was a co-founder and board chair for the not-for-profit Life After Hate, an organization that seeks to help people leave the white supremacist movement behind. He volunteered his time with them and also speaks around the world, educating police forces and governments and all kinds of those kinds of things. So, ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together and help me to welcome Tony McAleese. Welcome, Tony. Thank you for having me. Good to have you in, mate. So let's start off with this. What are you curious about? What do you find yourself most curious about these days? Most curious? Um, human behavior. Yeah. And what makes people tick and behave the way that they do in different, different circumstances. It's always fascinating to see, uh, see how people react to different stresses and stuff. And, um, you know, in this time of the, the pandemic, it's, there's a lot of interesting behavior going on. What are you noticing? Um, I, I, I don't think that we'll go back. I don't, there's no going back to what was the before time. No. Um, and I think um, how people are handling the, the social isolation aspect of it, how they're handling the social distancing aspect. Um, you know, there's some people that, that take it upon themselves to be the enforcers of social distancing and mm -hmm. get uh, quite aggressive with that. And, and I think um, it's, it's interesting watching introverts who, who are quite fine being alone when it's their choice to be alone. Ah. Um, but when it's not their choice to be, be alone, the, the loneliness really uh, comes out. And, mm -hmm. and so there's uh, just a lot of, um, just a lot of interesting behavior around the, the whole thing. But um, yeah, it, it is fascinating. And um, as you know, from the work we've done before, you know, under stress, we regress. So it's going to be, you know, it's fascinating 
Um, I, Oprah said years ago, wealth doesn't make you into something, it reveals you. It, you know, it, when you become wealthy, um, whatever you were is magnified. And I think that in many ways, the situation with the pandemic is exactly that. It's a magnification process. Um, I, you know, the people I know who work harder, working harder. The people I know who are lazy, are lazier. Uh, the people who I know were carrying this undercurrent of pissosity are now feeling justified in being pissed off and angry. You know, I mean, it's it's very interesting. And, and people who were loving and caring and compassionate are just doing more to be loving, caring and compassionate. So you're right. It's, it's a very interesting time around behavior. And before we go on, we should, um, we should let everybody know that there's a certain trans, just as a matter of transparency here, that Tony and I have known each other for many, many years. So to give this, this episode context, please share, if you don't mind, Tony, please share with our audience, uh, how you and I met, uh, give them a little bit of background on that. Cause that's, that's an episode right there. Yeah, ab absolutely. And uh, we met uh, through a mu mutual friend of ours, Damien. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, Do you remember what year that was? I was thinking about that this morning. 2005. Was it really? I think it was 15 se years ago. September 2005. Wow. Okay. And, uh, you know, I just, I was a year into a, a, a budding career as a financial advisor and uh, looking for ways to improve myself and and earn more abundance, and it really was really was about material things at at that point, you know, sure. just material things. And uh, and Damien invited me. I think it was at the Masons Hall on probably uh, yeah an, an evening, and there's this uh, very fu very funny uh, Mancunian. Um, you know, giving the presentation about uh, abundance and, and getting out of your own way and that, that type of thing. And, and I, uh, I started doing uh, these programs, you know, mm -hmm. uh, Mind Mastery. I think I did. Yeah. I must have done Mind Mastery five or six times over the years. But, and I remember um, each time I did it, you know, the, you know, my life started improving in wonderful ways and, and my income was going up. And, you know, again, I was focused on all these material things. And after, after about, uh, about 10, eight, nine, 10 months, it's my birthday and, and Damien hands me an envelope for my birthday and I open it up and pull out the, the and it's a gift certificate for one-on-one -on -one counseling introductory session with you. And I thought like, great, he doesn't want therapy for the birthday, right? And <laughs> yeah, worries. Oh, please. Happy, <laughs> yeah. happy birthday. Thanks, Damo. Um, and so I, I, I went to the session with you and, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, and it was my very first counseling session, uh, ever. And, and I, you know, got into all the reasons why I was angry, angry at my dad. Uh, I couldn't come up with any reasons why I was angry at my mom, but that, <laughs> that's a, that's a whole other story. And, and uh -huh. so I got into the, got into the sort of that, that surface level, uh, stuff about my childhood that uh, as you do in, in, in the therapy session. And, and then I, I thought, do I tell them the rest? Because mm -hmm. I'd spent 15 years as a skinhead, neo-Nazi leader, recruiter, Holocaust denier, all of those things, um, quite high profile. And 
I was terrified because I'd, I'd gotten to know you. I, I liked you. It was a, a relationship that, uh, that I valued uh, and I didn't want to lose it. And so I was humming and hawing and staring at the carpet, you know, to see if maybe that might provide uh, <laughs> an answer. Somewhere in the shag pile there, there was going to be the answer. <laughs> and then uh, you said to me, uh, you know, what is it, you know, what, what is it you want to, you, you want to say? And I, I, I was frozen and I, I couldn't look at you and I was feeling deeply ashamed about what I'd been involved with and stared at another part of the carpet uh, to no avail. And, and you said, look, mate, it's okay. It's safe. Um, you look like you're trying to th swallow three golf balls. Just let it out. It's all right. And eventually I, I just blurted out the, the, you know, reader's digest version of everything that I'd been into. And, and the more I talked about who I was and what I'd done as a neo-Nazi in the skinhead, the more you started smiling. And the more you started smiling, the more I got annoyed. And, <laughs> you know, here I am bearing my soul in my very first counseling session. This guy's laughing at me. And, uh, and I remember asking you, like, what's so funny? And you, and you leaned in with a big grin on your face and said, you know, I'm Jewish, right? And I'm like, oh, of course, of course. And there I am sinking into my share in, in shame and knowing that I'd once advocated for the annihilation of uh, you and your people. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, and I remember you, you said to me, that's, that's what you did. That's not who you are. Mm -hmm. And I see little Tony, I see you. And at that point I started, you know, bawling and crying and, you know, you, you touched me in a deeply emotional way in that moment and without judgment, with compassion and, and that was the beginning of a, a very long and wonderful journey um, of introspection and healing that's got me out the other side uh, where I can share what I've learned in my journey with others so that they, they can understand, be curious about themselves and what makes their own behaviors tick, you know, never mind being curious to others and, and, uh, uh, it transformed the the relationships with my my children and and uh, yeah, sort of all the relationships in my orbit mm -hmm. sort of really improved the more I did this work. So I just kept kept with it. And I think over over the next six years or so, I think it was well over a thousand hours of one on one and group yep um, group counseling to really. Um, you know, I became really curious about me and, and who is, who is the, the, the real me and who, who am I not? I think it's yeah. just as much a question as, um, who we are. How long were you in the movement, um, before you left in, in, you know, I mean, not talking about, um, leaving uh and and de-radicalizing your thinking but actually stepping away from the movement so how long were you actually actively involved inside of the movement uh 83 84 till about 98 so about 15 years so about 15 years you were spouting hateful language behaving in hateful ways and doing all that 
Um, and how old were you when you got in? Um, so lady three eighty four sixteen. So you spent almost as long in as you did out bef be before you got uh, you know before you got out right. So you were you were you know Tony without that, and then you were Tony with it in equal parts. Yep. That's a lot of identity. You know, when you think about that, that's a lot of identity because, you know, you and I have talked a lot about, and I've talked about it on here, that in life we go through um, stages of development. This is not you, Tony, or me as humans. And one of those stages of development is where we're supposed to break away from our family of origin and find a new family. And we usually find that in peer groups and we often do that in our teen years which you, of course you did. But for some people that becomes a lifestyle for other people, it becomes a brief transition, but you were there for 15 years. Was that your new family during that time? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and identity, it wasn't just something I believed in. It was who I was. It was what I listened to, what I read, what I watched, the friends I had, um, you know, I, I describe um, identity and, and ideology become intertwined. Right. You know, they're, they're inseparable. Mm -hmm. And that's the challenge if you're trying to help someone leave that stuff behind is if you go and attack, the ide attack their ideology, you're also attacking their identity and, and the ego defense mechanisms will fight to the death to preserve that identity. Absolutely. So do you remember... Um, because you, you know, just sort of give everybody a bit of background, just tell, tell our audience, uh, who your mom and your dad were when you entered into that world. Um, yeah, they, they weren't supportive of it one bit. My dad was, was bombed by the Germans during world war two. Mm -hmm. So it's, I suppose it's an interesting way to be angry at your father is to have a poster on your bedroom wall of the guy who sent the bombs. <laughs> <laughs> And then, uh, and then my mom, uh, she was more like, uh, you know, what would the neighbors think? You know, what, what, what's the world, how does it reflect on me if, you know, he's, he's doing all of this, this stuff. And so I, I, during that time I was pretty estranged from my parents. Right. So did you get estranged when you first joined up or did, or did that, was that a progression? Sort of Dude. like, you know, I'm in and bye-bye parents or was it, you know, was there a time? No, there was a, there was a, there was a progression because it, it, it got more and more serious and more and more in, involved, you know, and it was, you know, being a skinhead and, you know, talking about the national front, but not really, you know, connected to the ideology. It was more like a, a you know, a button or a badge, Mm -hmm. a patch or something and, and it would you know offend people and get a reaction and and um uh, you know that's how it started but then it it gradually over time became uh more and more all about the about the ideology and and i even you know left the whole skinhead thing behind and was fully immersed in in the the ideology of right. white supremacy and anti-semitism so did your can you tell us a little bit, because I want people to understand. So let's pretend for a minute that somebody is watching, listening to us and they're 
son, daughter, uh, grandchild, uh, nephew, your niece, you know, whoever it might be, somebody they love um, is entered into that world. Um, that's why I'm trying to have this context. So where is, you know, what's the initial conversations, you know, when your mom notices or your dad notices, or did they not notice until you were deeply embedded? Um, you know, first when I was, you know, started hanging out with the skinheads, they were like, you know, what are you, what are you doing hanging out with, with those people, you know, they're, they haven't finished high school and you're a mm. bright kid and you can go to university and you can do anything you want. And you have all these, um, you know, resources available. I was a middle, middle class, upper middle class kid that went to private school and lived on the West side of Vancouver. I, I didn't come from, um, you know, an obviously broken, uh, mm -hmm. broken home and, you know, my dad was a psychiatrist, you know, maybe, mm -hmm. maybe, maybe that explains a lot right there. Exactly. <laughs> um, so they couldn't understand why I wanted to, to hang out with them. And, and the reason I wanted to hang out with them is they had the one thing that I didn't, and that was toughness. Mm -hmm. you know, nobody was, uh, nobody was ever afraid of me and I'd hardly been in any fights at school growing up. So, um, and I'd had some uh, challenges at the Catholic school um, for getting caned if I didn't get an A or B in, in tests. And, I, and when I think back to those moments in that office, um, I don't think I ever felt more powerless uh, than I did in that office over and over and over again, getting, getting caned. And the one thing about the skinheads was everyone was afraid of them and I was safe when I was with them. So that was the, that was the attraction um, for me. I know we got a letter at Life After Hate uh, when I was there uh, from a mother. And she said, look, my son's 18. He's got uh, Asperger's syndrome. Um, he, when he's up, up to his eyeballs in this white nationalist stuff online. And she said, what terrifies me is that they have accepted and embraced my son in a way that no one else has in, in his entire life. And... And that's powerful. Of course it is. That's deeply powerful. And it's not that he's there for the ideology. The ideology is something that you just have to, you have to wear in order to be, to be accepted, but that, that, um, to be, to be accepted as a, as a human being from that place of abject loneliness. I remember she told me that, you know, in grade seven on his birthday, he invited the, in the entire class to come to his birthday party. Nobody showed up. Mm. And so there was that deep, deep loneliness. That's the vulnerability. And, and I became very good at, and other people were good at is to, is to, you know, love bomb people when they, when they, and take advantage of that feeling, uh, their loneliness to, uh, to sort of reel them in. So when you were advocating and you were recruiting, I mean, obviously now you have insights around human behavior that you didn't have then, but now looking back, do you think you were looking for the outcast? You were looking for the lonely um, people to, to reel in? I don't, I don't know that we're consciously, consciously aware, but that's who you know, 
you put your arm around and invite the person to a party and here have a beer and there's music and social and and you know and they they found sort of a a, a home i think um people that had all of those things in in a, in a healthy way just not attracted to the movement like the right and so we we definitely um you know took advantage of of those vulnerabilities and, and the vulnerabilities that make someone susceptible that make the ideology so seductive they're they're basic basic human drivers basic human um needs Absolutely. So tell us an example of that, where those basic human needs are getting met that were not getting met. Uh, if, I, if I go back to, to myself, I mean, you know, with my dad, I could never, ever figure out the puzzle of what I had to do in order to get his love, attention, is it attention, acceptance and approval. It's like, uh, you know, I spent most of my adult life trying to solve that mm-hmm. that that puzzle um, before I realized he's just not capable of it. It's not, you know, I I can't be angry at him because because of what's happened to him in his childhood, and he's not not capable of it. But in in the in the skinhead thing, there was clearly defined rules that if you obeyed the rules, you would get respect, you would get acceptance, you would get approval, and and there was a certainty it wasn't a puzzle it was right so do one do two do three do a do b do c and the equivalent is that you will get love you will get acceptance you will get approval you will get applause you will get celebrated you get all those things but if you do a different one two three a b c at home that might not work might work might not work maybe you need an f and a g and maybe you need a z is that what you mean yeah, yeah, and it was like it was a puzzle that couldn't be solved. It was that was the because it was in constant rotation, or or it was or just was it was it because it was there were different things on a daily basis at home, or was it because, as you said earlier, that your dad was not capable, so that's why the puzzle was not not solvable. Yeah, no, and, uh, and he would he would communicate. Well, if you do these these things, you'll you'll get it. But of course, he did those things, and it didn't happen. You know, and it's right. and then it becomes you know confusing and and you know frustrating and and all of those things. And I, I got to a point later on where, um, you know, his his dad was away at sea during his childhood and torpedoed and thought as presumed dead and all, all that kind of right. stuff. And I said, well, how can I how can I be angry at my dad for you know, not giving me something he doesn't know how to give me. Right. You know, and and once I got to that place, then, then I didn't have to play the game anymore. Then I I just accepted what is and, and, and sort of set my boundaries around the relationship that was no longer full of disappointment. Right. So we're going to take a little break. And when we, and when we come back, we're going to come back with Tony McAleer and we're going to talk more about his journey of transition from being a neo-Nazi recruiter to uh, becoming the author of The Cure for Hate. 